Hello and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about queer life and whether the cops can arrest us for having sex. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. I'm Brian Lauder. I edit Outward. And this is our final bonus Outward episode of the month. I really hate to wrap up Pride Month with a terrifying look into the abyss, but that's where we are and that's what we're doing. We have gathered this week to unpack the Supreme Court decision that came down a few days ago in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, a viciously written opinion by Samuel Alito that overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, ending the era of nationwide legal abortion in the U.S. and ushering in, well, we'll see. <laughs> We've had a lot of great podcasts at Slate discuss what the decision means for reproductive health care, women's rights, and the lives of people who may become pregnant. Our Amicus podcast is essential listening on the courts. This season of Slow Burn tracked the lead up to the Roe decision. And uh, yours truly was on the waves last week to sort of um, blubber through the news. But today, we are joined by Slate senior writer Mark Joseph Stern, an avowed homosexual (laughs) and lawyer to boot, to talk about what the Dobbs decision means for the rights and protections of LGBTQ people. Mark, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. Those are, coincidentally, the two things I want on my gravestone. (laughs) So I'm so glad that you threw them out there for this episode. Well, hopefully we won't need to etch that inscription for decades yet. (laughs) So first off, what did the decision and the various dissents and concurrences that came with it say explicitly about LGBTQ rights? So the majority decision by Justice Alito sort of talks out of two sides of its mouth. So on the one hand, much of the decision is devoted to repudiating the doctrine that underlies the Supreme Court's most important gay rights decisions which is this idea that the liberty guaranteed by the Constitution in the 14th Amendment is not confined to a specific and narrow set of freedoms that would have been recognized when it was ratified in 1868, and that instead there is a realm of personal autonomy that is also protected and that may sort of evolve through the ages and make itself known to future generations and gain constitutional stature through a broader acceptance in society. Mm -hmm. So that's the basis of Lawrence v. Texas, which is the 2003 decision striking down sodomy bans. That's the chief basis of Obergefell v. Hodges, which established a right to same-sex marriage. And that is the very doctrine that, again, Alito just refutes over and over again in his opinion and says, actually, that's all wrong. The 14th Amendment only protects those rights that were recognized in 1868 that are, quote, deeply rooted in America's history and tradition, Mm -hmm. and anything else is unprotected. But he then says... Later on in the opinion, don't worry, nothing in this decision that I just wrote undermining a whole bunch of precedents should be read to cast doubt on any other precedents. So we have to decide which version of Alito we want to trust. Is it the version uh, that takes up 95% of the opinion that says um, the entire constitutional basis for gay rights is bunk? Or do we trust the 5% of Alito that says, oh, don't worry about anything else. This is solely about abortion. 
I wanted to jump in there with a little bit of the devil's advocate question, because I don't believe this, but I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it. So in your piece about this, Mark, you you sort of say that one of Alito's arguments is that, and I'm I'm totally like paraphrasing here, this is not a quote, that abortion is somehow categorically different, sort of legally speaking, from any of these other things that are about like consenting adults' behaviors, right? And so somehow that's like a separate category when there's like a, a fetus involved, or he would say, I guess, a human life involved from from these other these other rights. Uh, and so that's that's where you would get the difference between one being illegal and one not. Why isn't that a compelling argument to you? So Alito says that abortion is sharply distinguished from other cases because it involves the taking of potential life. And the reason that I I don't put a lot of faith in that line is that there were a couple of ways that Alito could have written Mm. this opinion. Uh, And one way he could have done it is to say that Roe and Casey and other abortion decisions undervalued fetal life. That a fetus um, is a a, a soon-to-be person that states have a strong interest in recognizing and protecting from uh, violence, as abortion foes Mm -hmm. call it. And that in Roe, the court simply dismissed the government's interest in protecting that life, but that in reality, there's no reason why states should not play a strong role in ensuring that that fetus is carried to term. But Alito doesn't say that. And he instead completely kind of hops over the fetal life argument and goes straight to the history and tradition rationale that says rights were frozen in 1868. And so if he had chosen the fetal life argument, then I would put more credit in that disclaimer, because it's true that under that rationale, abortion can be sharply distinguished from other rights because it is somewhat true. I mean, we can kind of get into the the dispute here philosophically, but it's true that, you know, same-sex intimacy does not involve the taking of what anyone would describe as potential life. But again, that's just (laughs) not what Alito says. He says it's irrelevant, that all that stuff is irrelevant, that all that matters is what the men who wrote the 14th Amendment mm. were thinking because it was exclusively men. So, you know, this is a point that the dissenters make. It's not original to me, but I think it's really worth raising up um, because when you consider the different paths the Lido could have taken, you wonder, well, why this one? Why did he land on this rationale? And to me, having followed Alito's jurisprudence for many years, it's because he is trying to push the law in a very specific yeah. direction, looking at what's ahead on the horizon. Right. And specifically, I mean, it's almost not even worth saying that entire swaths, probably the majority of the U.S. population did not have rights when the the Constitution and the 14th (laughs) Amendment were written. Mark, certain corners of the right are now sort of latching onto that part of Alito's opinion and saying, like, you know, gays, calm down. What are you so worried about? Like, nothing's going to happen to you. Why do you think they are invested in quelling the terror that a lot of us are feeling right now? Well, I think part of it is backlash management. And you can find an analogy in all of the conservatives and centrists who were claiming that Roe was not in danger for many years. You can go back and look at Wall Street Journal editorials from 2018, 2020, when Kavanaugh and Barrett joined the court saying, relax, liberals, you know, you're just crying wolf, you're trying to get money for Democrats. But in reality, this precedent is not at all imperiled. Of course, now Roe has fallen, that line doesn't quite work, but they've just moved on to the next 
next lie, because I do think it's a lie, that overturning Roe does not imperil these other decisions. And I really like the metaphor that the dissenters use. I'm pretty sure this was Justice Kagan. She said that uh, the majority pretends that you can just take that final block out of a Jenga tower and not worry even a little that the whole thing is going to collapse. That's what these conservatives are encouraging us to believe, that even though there is no principled way to distinguish this decision from all of those other cases that are rooted in the same doctrine, we should just trust that five justices will protect those other rights that have been sort of implicitly repudiated. And so I I think that they want to keep us from panicking because there can be political value in fear. There can be political value for the left in outrage and terror. They don't want the left to rally the base against the potential fall of marriage equality. They want the left to remain kind of complacent and to think, well, yeah, Roe is gone and that sucks, but everything else is okay. Because Otherwise, Democrats could, I think, uh, draw on a lot of anger in the base to make a real showing in upcoming elections. But of course, we also have evidence that this is a serious goal, right? In the concurrence, and Thomas's concurrence, which we haven't mentioned yet. So I thought maybe you should go into what, what was actually in that that was a very direct about what we're talking about. Yeah, and and, um, our colleague Dahlia Lithwick co-authored a great piece about this that sort of praises Thomas's dissent as the only honest one. And I think that's exactly right, because Thomas doesn't really believe in this concept of unenumerated rights in the first place. He doesn't believe that the liberty guaranteed by the Constitution protects anything that's not laid out in the text. And so he says, you know, now that we've overturned Roe, our next targets should be Lawrence uh, on same-sex intimacy, Obergefell, marriage, and Griswold v. Connecticut, which protected the right to contraception. And we see, going to your earlier question, Brian, we see these Republican politicians saying, oh, don't worry, contraception is sacrosanct, we would never touch it. But the play here is to say that certain forms of contraception are actually abortions, Mm. they are abortifacients. Mm -hmm. So things like Plan B and IUDs don't fall under the usual category of birth control. They're this special kind of lethal uh, contraception that states have an interest in outlawing. And we just recently saw the governor of Arkansas refused to say on TV whether he would ban Plan Mm. B. Um, And that is, I think, one of the next moves. So yes, Thomas is laying out the agenda here. He is saying what the majority will not. And again, you know, he has a majority for many of his passion projects. It's very clear that he is in some ways steering this court. So I don't see why we wouldn't pay more attention Mm -hmm. to him and his candor than we do to Alito and his mealy-mouthed assurances that, you know, nothing else is on the table. All right, we're going to take a short break here to hear from our sponsors, but we'll be back in just a few minutes with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern for more. All right, we're back with Mark Joseph Stern. Mark, what comes next? What kinds of first attempts at, you know, testing the solidity of Lawrence Obergefell will we see starting to pop up in state legislatures and trickle through the courts? So first of all, many states still have laws on the books that criminalize same-sex sodomy or sodomy mm-hmm. altogether. and uh, Which can apply to straight people, right? Isn't that true? Yeah, yes. like yeah. oral sex, for example, of I course. think is considered sodomy in some, in some cases, yeah. That's right. Now... Sorry, I just want to point out that straight people can have butt sex as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Important, <laughs> important to point out. Yeah. Uh, and I, according to some surveys, it's on mm. the rise. They are exercising <laughs> their Lawrence rights. <laughs> But it, some of those laws actually just targeted what they called homosexual right, conduct right, sure. um, and, and excluded straight people. So straight people could have all the anal sex that they mm-hmm. wanted, but gay people were left out in the cold. And both varieties of laws are still on the books. And of course, there are still many laws and state constitutional amendments prohibiting marriage equality. So there, there are a few ways the Republicans could do this. They could try to just start enforcing those old laws, which is what they're doing right now with abortion bans that were on the books mm. before Roe, just Try to revive them and say, well, now that the constitutional basis for, for those decisions is, is gone, we're going to try to enforce these laws, whether it means arresting gay people who have sex. That seems pretty extreme, but maybe um, starting to deny custody to a parent who comes out as gay and say, well, what you do is criminal under our state law or firing gay employees or denying health insurance to uh, a same-sex spouse of a state employee and saying what you do is criminal, your marriage is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. These are things that states actually started to try to do after Obergefell in 2015, yeah. but of course the Supreme Court was able to pretty swiftly smack them down. But there are also all of these kind of edge cases regarding marriage equality. So do same-sex couples have to be listed on their child's birth certificate? The Supreme Court said yes in 2017, but this is a very different court and I don't know that it would reach the same conclusion. There are a bunch of different ways that states can try to push the envelope here in rolling back uh, what the court called the constellation of benefits that states have attached to marriage and they can kind of test the waters, to mix my Mm -hmm. metaphors, um, (laughs) to see if this Supreme Court is going to be willing to play ball Mm. with them. Could we talk a little bit more? I mean, you just got into this a bit, but I but I am kind of a, like fixated on the idea of Lawrence in particular and going after that because Americans like love the idea, at least the idea of privacy. And so it's like hard for me to even imagine how would the right go about making this argument legally that that the that the state should be involved in the way people are having sex? I just it's just like hard for my brain to like marriage is new. Marriage they hated marriage. They hated that that they lost that battle. So of course they would come after that. That makes sense to me. But like legally, how would you go about making an argument that the state should be involved in sex lives? I just I don't know. So the way that these laws operated even before Lawrence was not arrests in the bedroom. Um, the actual arrest in Lawrence was very unusual and probably the couple wasn't actually right, even having right. sex, but civil rights lawyers seized upon it as a test case. What happened more was what I was discussing where the state would say, well, you can't have custody because you're deemed a criminal. You can't have employment. You can't get state benefits, whatever. You are not a full and equal citizen in the eyes of the law because who you are are and what you do is criminal conduct. And I think that that is more likely how these laws would operate. I, I really doubt that you would see um, prosecutors and law enforcement officers raiding the bedrooms of same-sex couples. Or like sex, uh, sex even clubs that. or bars or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can, yeah. Right. That seems like pushing uh-huh. it too far. Um, but you, you could a state could certainly try to use the presumptive sexual activities of a gay person to discriminate against them. The other way that states could do it is to look for cases where it's 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 a bad set of facts mm-hmm. And the state can try to toss sodomy onto the pile of charges. Ah. So this is something that Ken Cuccinelli tried to do in Virginia, where I believe it was a case involving, um, it was statutory rape. 
And uh, one of the one of the acts that was performed was deemed sodomy under Virginia's mm-hmm. law. And so Republicans said, well, we should still be able to prosecute that as sodomy, because even though the court has said that sodomy is protected, that's only between consenting adults. So that's mm-hmm. another way to push the envelope a little bit to say you have an, an instance of a sexual assault or statutory rape or something very bad that we all agree is is, yeah, is bad and yeah, unacceptable, yeah. but that does involve sodomy, um, then you could uh, definitely mm-hmm. imagine a very conservative prosecutor saying, we're going to try to revive this law because we need to protect children mm-hmm. and we need to protect victims right. and using that as a backdoor to revive these sodomy laws for more sure. general use. Well, I'm also... Uh, Nothing could shock me at this point, even the way that this groomer rhetoric and the storming of drag queen story hours by far right groups in the past couple months. It doesn't seem far fetched for me to imagine that at one point, you know, all of a sudden it's gay people being themselves in public. That's the target. And that even what they do behind closed doors is somehow grooming and disintegrating the fabric of our moral society or I don't know, whatever the fuck they say. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that is what they say. And prosecutors are often the ones who are out in front of the movement testing what the public will accept, finding creative or new uh, ways to enforce laws and seeing how far politicians and the public will allow them to go. And I think that's what a lot of these don't say gay laws are about uh, and what a lot of these uh, proposals against drag queen story hour or exposing children to drag queens or whatever are about. It's it's empowering prosecutors to try to wield their authority in a way that intimidates and chills the LGBTQ community and then giving them the opportunity to, to, to have a test case and see if the public will stand behind them if they try to, say, arrest a drag queen for performing in the vicinity of a minor. Yeah. Mark, let me ask you another sort of devil's advocate question. Neil Gorsuch is an ally. (laughs) He wrote the majority decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, the 2020 decision that affirmed equal employment protections for queer and trans people. John Roberts joined that opinion. Can we expect them to stand up for us and our right to equal marriage and parenthood rights and sex? No. (laughs) No, the short answer is no. But what I will say is that LGBTQ issues are not high on the list of things that Gorsuch or Roberts really cares about. Uh, I think they were willing to write that opinion and join that opinion because they were not blinded by hatred Mm -hmm toward LGBTQ people the way that someone like Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito is. And so they were able to apply the statute in a direct and fair-minded way and acknowledge that, you know, as Gorsuch wrote, you simply cannot discriminate against someone for being gay or being trans without factoring in their sex. And the whole point of of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is that sex is irrelevant to employment decisions. Um, They're a little bit younger than Thomas and Alito. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are Gen X. I don't think that any of them necessarily despise LGBTQ people with the passion of Thomas. And so I don't think they'll be reaching out to grab these Mm. cases, especially Gorsuch and and to some degree Roberts, who has younger children and who is part of mainstream society. He's not like Thomas. He hasn't walled himself off from everyone except like-minded radical conservatives. So, you know, it, it requires four votes for the Supreme 
Supreme Court to even take up a case. And I think that right now, the biggest comfort is that you can't really imagine four justices clamoring eagerly to take up a case reconsidering marriage equality. That said, Trump seated the lower courts with extremely radical judges who can basically just ignore precedent and force the Supreme Court to take a case. So you can easily imagine some crazy people on the Fifth Circuit saying, well, Dobbs effectively overruled Obergefell, so we're going to uphold Texas's same-sex marriage ban and require the Supreme Court to reevaluate the issue, and then we're in serious trouble. Well, since you just brought up the idea of comfort, I mean, is there any hope here or is it as bleak as it seems? I mean, are there things that activists and lawyers who want to protect LGBTQ rights should be trying to do to sort of stem this tide that we it's going to come. But like, what is there anything we can do to slow it at least? I mean, one thing I can tell you if we want to focus on the doctrine is that Obergefell did not rest solely on uh, the definition of liberty. It included an equal protection component. And so did Windsor, which was the case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, the Mm -hmm. federal ban. And I think that lawyers are going to pretend as if the other parts of those opinions don't exist, the parts that were basically overruled by Dobbs, and zero in on equal protection, which you could argue is what should have been the focus Mm. in the first place of Mm. those cases. And I think that there is a chance that if and when these challenges um, to those precedents arise, that lawyers will be able to make very strong arguments, even persuasive arguments before conservative courts, that Dobbs doesn't just decide these issues because Dobbs was not an equal protection case. And these other cases do involve very fundamental questions of equality and government classifications and efforts to demean certain groups uh, as sort of second class citizens. I I would also say, again, that, you know, this younger crop of judges, even the really extreme ones, a lot of them are vigorously anti-abortion, but seem a little less anti-LGBTQ in their personal leanings. And so if we can keep these cases out of court, which may not be possible, but if we can, I don't know, there's a there's a chance that the, the, the Trump judges will not sort of prioritize them the way that they have absolutely prioritized getting Roe v. Wade to the Supreme Court as fast as possible for reversal. Mm-hmm. That's a cold comfort, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's, something. Yeah, it. it's something. Well, Mark... Thank you so much, as always, for sharing your wisdom with us. And I look forward to tracking uh, what (laughs) happens to our rights together in the future. Next time you have me on, I want to talk about good news because this is totally unfair. (laughs) The next time you see a good gay rom-com, let us know and we'll have you on to review it. I do not just want to guide outward <laughs> listeners into the abyss. I want, no, we deserve we better. better. That's a deal. We'll do it. We'll do it. All right. That is it for this special episode of Outward. Thanks again to our excellent colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, for joining us today. You can and should read all of his coverage of the Dobbs decision and the courts generally in Slate. Uh, you probably noticed that we've been extra busy this Pride Month putting out Outward content each week. But in case you missed it, go check out our feed for a special spoilery chat about the Hulu movie Fire Island, a full episode about our first times at Pride, and much more. As always, please send us feedback, topic ideas, advice, questions, updates on your lives, anything you want to outwardpodcast at slate.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. June Thomas is our producer. 
If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, rate and review the show so that others can find it and join us in tracking what happens to our rights all together. It'll be more fun that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Outward will be back in your feeds on July 20th. Until then, just take care of each other and uh, stay gay, everybody. Happy Pride. <laughs>